good evening, everyone. A very well, warm welcome to our platform theatre here at Central St Martins. Um, I'm Jane Rapley, and I'm the head of college here. And tonight's occasion is one of the latest in a, a series that has uh, perhaps experienced the Olympic-like rush for tickets. Um, so there's been a bit of a scramble, so it's great to see you all here. Um, and uh, a, a very popular and special event um, that we're very pleased to host here. Um, before we do that, there's some important thank yous that I have to make. Well, this evening is the inaugural event of our relationship with the New Statesman, and we um, expect that this will be the first of at least one annual lecture um, that we will do with the New Statesman, uh, plus I hope some other um, things that we will do together. So we're very, very pleased and excited about that. Um, and we're delighted that their editor of culture, Jonathan Derbyshire, is going to join us in conversation with um, Slavoj Zizek. And we particularly would like to thank Adam Bowie and Rosalind Goats for working with Peter Cleek to make this evening happen. We're also here to celebrate the uh, Verso's publication of Less Than Nothing, Hegel and the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism. Um, something that uh, Shizik claims is a, a lifetime's work. Um, and uh, we're thrilled to be launching this masterwork at Central St. Martins and are very grateful to Sarah Shin and everyone at Verso for collaborating with us on that. And in a similar vein, we'd like to thank Henry Lord of Icon Books. Um, 2011 saw the release of a um, Slavoj Zezik, a graphic guide as part of their introducing series. Um, and it's an edition illustrated by Piero and written by the leader of our MRES Art, Theory and Philosophy, Christopher Coolwant. Um, appropriately, uh, London's oldest radical bookshop and our new friends at King's Cross, Hausman, are running a store in the theatre foyer that I'm sure you noticed as you came in, uh, where a selection of Zizek's publications have been generously discounted by both publishers, especially for this event. So please do take advantage of that. And Zizek has kindly agreed to sign some copies following the talk, uh, presenting a rare opportunity to, to meet the man in person. Um, now, I'm going to hand over to Chris Colwant who's going to introduce our speakers tonight. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Good evening. It's very nice to see you all. I'm sure you're as excited as we are uh, about this forthcoming event. Um, uh, I am going to just say a few words of introduction, after which... Um, Slavoj Zizek and Jonathan Derbyshire, who is the cultural editor of the New Statesman, will be in conversation. Um, something in the region of like an hour, I think they, they'd like to speak, and after which there will be a question and answer session. And I'm very pleased to say that we've got wonderful uh, lighting here, so we haven't got that kind of peering into the dark situation. We can have some kind of sense of dialogue and participation. Uh, between you uh, and the speakers. 
So we're very privileged this evening to have the renowned philosopher, political thinker and activist Slavoj Zizek speaking here at the college. His visit marks a number of particular occasions and events, both here at Central St. Martins and in the publishing field. Jane has already spoken to you about the collaboration with the New Statesman in hosting future events, presenting leading thinkers and writers today. Over the past decade or so, Zizek has gained an increasingly high profile within not just academia, but also within the media in the UK. And the New Statesman has been one of a number of major outlets in this regard for Zizek's writings. So it's very appropriate that he should be opening this series. As you know, this is the first year uh, that um, we have been based here, Central St. Martins have been based here at the King's Cross building. Uh, we're just drawing to the end of our first academic year in this building. Uh, and the building has allowed us to uh, develop quite a number of new uh, ventures and projects, um, including in the School of Art, in the, my own uh, School of Art department, uh, a research culture um, with a master's course in art theory and philosophy. And so it's especially apposite to the developing research area and interest that we have here at the college to have Slavoj Zizek, a prominent philosopher, uh, here this evening. At the same time, this is also an occasion to mark Zizek's work with two new ventures of his own. The first is a forthcoming documentary soon to be released, uh, A Pervert's Guide to Ideology, a sequel to the, I know many of you will probably already know, the, uh, the uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema, directed by Sophie Fines, that was written and presented in Zizek's inimitable wry fashion, uh, very ably aided, incidentally, by reworkings of famous film sets, including uh, the basement in Psycho, uh, the hotel rooms in Vertigo, and the conversation, um, as well as uh, the, the famous scene from The Matrix. Fines' editing and intercutting of scenes was especially notable, with Zizek either inserting himself into certain famous film scenes or actually impersonating particular lead actress, actors, and even actresses. Zizek's a comparatively broad figure, sitting in for the beautiful Kim Novak, uh, was particularly memorable in this regard. Uh, apparently the new documentary, dealing with films ranging, ranging from The Sound of Music, Zizek and Julie Andrews, um, Titanic and the Bond movies promises more in this vein. The second of Zizek's recent projects that we're celebrating this evening is the publication by Verso of his new book, uh, Hegel uh, and Less Than Nothing, Hegel and the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism. And this will form part of the subject of Jonathan's discussion with Zizek this evening. A labor of love as well as of revaluation with respect to previous aspects of thinking by the author, Zizek has been wanting to write this book on Hegel for some time. Indeed, in a sense, this has been a project that has been in process of development at least since the publication of Zizek's first book in the UK, The Sublime Object of Ideology. 
In between this book uh, and the present one, no less than 50 books have been published of Zizek's writings in English, all of which have engaged in their different ways with the perennial influences of, on the one hand, the Marxist intellectual tradition, and on the other hand, Lacanian psychoanalysis, both of which have been straddled uh, by uh, the long shadow of the philosopher Hegel. Now, through his new book, this shadow, in a sense, has become deeper, yet richer, furthering the dialogue in Zizek's thinking with Lacan and other thinkers, both contemporary and historical. What characterizes Zizek's thinking, and this book is no exception, is not just the sheer range of subjects and issues, philosophical, political, cultural, with which he's familiar, but also his remarkably deft way of analyzing these subjects. Informed by a dialectical method that looks at issues from a series of contrasting and opposing angles, Zizek consistently produces novel and frequently surprising insights and arguments. Much of Zizek's project is concerned with the study of ideology and the tacit forms this takes in contemporary society around the edical imperative to be morally upright and in contrast the postmodern injunction and exhortation to enjoy, an ideological shift that Zizek has been particularly acute in uh, identifying. In his book on Hegel, Zizek focuses upon the particular ideologi ideological and simplifying tendency to seek solutions and answers in the face of often uneven and rapidly changing historical circumstances, revolutionary events, and political developments. Hegel's project in the early 19th century at the dawn of modernity attempted to face up to these complexities. And this is something which Zizek feels Hegel handled with exceptional virtuosity. Although at times he left open certain gaps and aporias in his philosophy and arguments. But even these gaps and aporias, Zizek proposes, are significant, leading him to suggest that it's Hegel, at least as much as Marx, who has the vision and the appropriately flexible as well as flawed qualities as a thinker to suit our own times of change and potential ruptures today. So on this, uh, or perhaps not, but no doubt many other philosophical and uh, contemporary matters, please uh, welcome Jonathan Derbyshire and Slavoj Zizek. I'm sorry for this. It will not be like you remember that famous scene in Marx Brothers' Night at the Opera, where instead of talking, the three of them just go drinking water. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> the New Statesman is delighted to be uh, hosting an event here in this wonderful space. I think my chairpersonly duties have already been carried out um, with that 
fulsome introduction, although it's customary at events like this, Schlavoy, to say of one's interlocutor, even if um, they're not as eminent as you, that they require no introduction. Um, in your case, that's, that's true. You've written too many books for me to try and list here. Um, and I notice, in fact, that you've, in, you've given up trying to do so on the jacket of your, your books. Um, on the jacket of Less Than Nothing, Hegel in the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism, um, one reads the following legend, and I think this will suffice as an introduction. Slavoj Žižek was born, writes books, and will die. Um, I, sorry, I have so what in California they call attitude problem with this, you know? Because once I was really pissed at some, another publisher way, they, you know, what I hate is that sometimes they want you also to add a personal paragraph, you know, like yeah. Miss Patricia Highsmith, in her free time, Miss Highsmith paints and grows flowers or whatever, no? <laughs> so just to provoke them, then I proposed something like, in his free time, Mr. Zizek, you know, watches child pornography and is <laughs> pulling wings of butterflies or whatever, no? I, I just hate this. So I thought, as everyone knows, as you also, this is uh, maybe even too arrogant, paraphrase of the famous line Heidegger. on uh, Aristotle. Heidegger on Aristotle. Yeah. So yeah. I know this so that you will not think that... Uh... <laughs> um, now I first came across your work, Shlavo, when I was uh, an undergraduate in the first flush of an infatuation with um, uh, French philosophy with thinkers like Derrida, Deleuze, Lyotard, all of whom define themselves in one way or another against Hegel. And then Appearing out of nowhere was this book by this mysterious Slovenian uh, with a taste... From the wild part of Europe where you do ethnic cleansing and rapes yeah, and so on. And, uh, yeah. Sorry, this may interest. I will immediately stop. Do you know that how serious this myth was? That when I published the next book by Verso with my friends, everything you ever wanted to know about Lacombe but didn't dare to ask Hitchcock yeah. on the other way around, in American campuses, I'm not kidding, there really was the predominant opinion that we don't exist. That this is the practical joke of some French intellectuals, you know. <laughs> like that, it's like Ruritania or all those countries, sorry, please. Um, in the book, the book that um, I was referring to is The Sublime Object of Ideology, which appeared like an immense provocation because, among other things, it was a defense of, a defense of Hegel, who was um, certainly in the circles uh, I moved in as an undergraduate persona, uh, persona non grata, or philosopher non grata, one might say. So one of the things I'm going to talk to Slavoj this evening about is, is Hegel. Um, but we won't talk just about Hegel, which may come as a relief to some of you. Um, and that, not least because Slavoj, philosophy for Hegel is its own age comprehended in thought. Um, and that's a conception of philosophy to which I think you, sub you subscribe. Um, but let, let's start with Hegel and see where the conversation, the conversation mm. takes us. Um, you start the book by asking a very simple question. Why do we focus on Hegel today? And what does it mean, you ask? to be a Hegelian, bearing in mind the radically changed historical yeah. constellation. Um, so why Hegel? I think the same question is even more actual today, I'm sad to say over 20 years later. Mm. Uh, you know why? Because I will be very dogmatic, please be my domina, cut me short if I talk too much as usual. You know, Hegel is for me one of the three key philosophers. 
Plato, Descartes, Hegel. Why? For a very simple structural reason. Did you notice how each of these three philosophers define, defines a whole epoch which comes after him, but in a negative way? Like, as Michel Foucault put it so nicely, one of the ways to define Western philosophy is all possible versions of anti-Platonism. No? All of them, how? Stoics, Stoics do in one way, uh, Aristotle in another way, and so on. And it's incredible, my friend Alain Badiou developed this, how even today you have a whole panoply of anti-Platonism. You have political anti-Platonism, Popper and so on, Levinas, you know, like uh, from Plato to NATO, Plato the father of totalitarianism and so on. You have uh, analytical philosophy anti-Platonism, like Plato idealist, no nominalism. You have, you, you have the Marxist anti-Platonism, Plato the first uh, uh, philosopher of the ruling class and so on, you have the vitalist anti-Platonism. Yeah. So again, to go quickly on, the same goes for Descartes. Yeah. Isn't practically all modern philosophy mm. a history of different rejections, overcomings of Descartes? Mm. And finally, Hegel is the ultimate example yeah. of this. No one is ready to be a Hegelian. Everyone wants to mark some distance, mm. you know. Like, uh, my thesis in all three cases, especially in the Hegel's case, is a very simple one. That in each of these three cases, what we are getting as the predominant image of a philosopher, what people react to, is what in psychoanalysis we call uh, Deckerinnerung, screen memory. Mm. A kind of a easy, simplified image which protects us from something much more unsettling, traumatic, that this philosophers really discover. So that the thing to do is to go back and see through this screen memory. Mm. Okay, I will not now lose time of what you find in Plato. I think Plato is basically a philosopher of traumatic encounter. Like, you know, you are an ordinary guy like Socrates, something's idea is something that you traumatically encounter. Another dimension enters. Descartes, is the first who desubstantialized philosophy introduced as the Redanu yeah. madness into philosophy and Hegel for me is the ultimate philosopher and that's why I like yeah. what you quoted that this is the mystery of Hegel mm. you quoted this uh, philosophy is its own time conceived in thought yeah. all the problem of reading Hegel I think can be condensed resumed in this in this simple apparent contrast. How can you bring this obviously relativizing historicist thesis with what is most dramatic for most of people in Kegel, with his claim to absolute knowing? Mm. Like, you know, that's the caricature of Hegel. There was a crazy guy in Prussia or South, later, uh, the end Berlin who thought he knows everything, he can read the mind of God and so on and so on. And what I'm claiming is that maybe both Poles are wrong. Neither was Hegel a simple historicist, nor does his absolute knowing means simply some access to the absolute beyond history. But Hegel occupies, or so you argue, a, a distinctive place in the history of philosophy in a way that Plato and, Plato and, and Descartes don't. It's a kind of hinge point in the history of philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Now you say something, I'd like you to unpack this if you can. Um, you say that 
the Hegelian moment, or in fact the moment of German idealism, so you say there are, mm. there are two dates that define the story yeah. you're telling in this book. 1787, which is when the second edition of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason mm. was published, and 1831 when Hegel no. died. So what's significant about that moment is, you say, it's the moment where philosophy appears as such. Now that's a slightly gnomic um, statement which I'd like mm. you to, to, mm. to unpack. Does that mean that it's the moment that philosophy became self-conscious? And, conscious yeah. and that acquired a way of talking about its own history, because that's one of the things yeah. we learned from Hegel, is a way of talking about the history of I, Although I deeply appreciate them, by them I mean so-called speculative realists. This new move, started with Quentin Meyassou and then all the others, Graham Harman, uh, Ray Brassier, uh, Hamilton and so on. This, uh, this is, uh, I think, where we disagree. That is to say, for me, Philosophy as such is transcendental. Mm. Philosophy before Kant was in a certain way, for me, in a way too naive. They simply thought reality is out there, let's see how reality is structured and so on and so on. We of course can read, as Heidegger did, Plato, Aristotle in this transcendental hermeneutic way, but mm. it's an anachronistic reading. So <coughs> this is what we find there. What we find after, mostly, I claim, is uh, a series of misunderstandings mm. of Hegel. So crazy as it may sound, but what one of the things I try to do in this volume, which, as you may have noticed, is called Less Than Nothing, but it certainly waits more than nothing. <laughs> and I don't think Hegel ever wrote a book. Maybe the greater logic approaches this in bulk. Not quite. It's 700, yeah. 700 pages. Okay, sorry. What I wanted uh, to say is that uh, my idea is a very simple one that we should, it's not that we should stay with Hegel. Mm. The whole second part of the book is a desperate attempt. I'm not even totally satisfied with it to think with Hegel, but beyond Hegel. What I'm saying is that all these post-Hegelian reversals, rejection of idealism, let's turn to some fixed positive foundation, uh, uh, production process for Marx, Wheeling, for Schopenhauer, late Schelling, and so on, are ways to avoid something that Hegel saw, that mm. Hegel's true insight in something so difficult and monstrous to accept that it's a trauma for all the post-Hegelian period. So to move forward, we have to go back and confront what Hegel effectively yeah. did. Um, I want to come to the question of uh, what it is you're trying to think with Hegel today, because am among other things, this, the, what you call your repetition of Hegel. You're not simply going back to Hegel, you're no, repeating no, yeah, yeah. Hegel and do, doing something different. Yeah. The stakes of your repetition of Hegel are, are political, and I think people will want to... Also and hear what you have to, say, have to say on that score in a moment. But let's just try and fill in some of this history with the, and satisfy ourselves that we understand where mm. Hegel belongs in the history of philosophy because a lot of the book is devo devoted to um, <clears throat> working that out. So you say that it's Kant's transcendental turn in philosophy that makes Hegel possible. So Kant mm. um, turned <clears throat> philosophy's attention to the conditions of possi uh, possible experience, as we know. So what is it that... Uh, takes Hegel beyond Kant. Now, I think you, you seem to be saying that in what we get in Hegel is a transposition of what in Kant are epistemological insights mm. 
um, into an ont ontological register. That's to say yeah, that, that what Kant it. sees as imperfections of knowledge, Hegel sees as, as you say, cracks in the real, in the thing itself. Yeah. Could you say something a bit more about that? No, uh, maybe, maybe I will use an example which I quite like, although I'm not sure if I got things correctly. Name, namely, uh, uh, the last chapter of the book, yes, it is the last, yeah. 14th, on quantum physics. Yeah. I claim that uh, this is also what makes quantum physics so breathtaking. It's ontological consequences which, as we all know, even today are not clear. And I think the key is how do you read this uh, complementarity uh, and, uh, or, or uncertainty principle. Here, I think we should follow Niels Bohr against Heisenberg, you know. When Heisenberg reads it as simple, uh, uh, basically as a simple epistemological limitation, we cannot measure the two complementary features, let's say uh, position and movement, whatever, sorry, uh, no, sorry, velocity and uh, position, whatever, we cannot measure them at the same time. If we measure one, we don't get the other. But, uh, uh, Niels Bohr is saying something much more radical. Not only that we cannot measure them, but that in itself, as it were, reality is incomplete. Mm. You know, if I may very briefly repeat a story which is, I think, perfect. I use it here. I took it from some introduction to philosophy written by someone who probably really hates Hegel, Nicholas Fern. Uh, uh, imagine, uh, imagine how is a computer game universe structured? It's not completely programmed. For example, you play a game, which I have to endlessly watch my small son playing Call of Duty and so on. Uh, and for example, you have in the background a house. But the interior of that house often is not programmed. Why not? Because simply it's not part of the game that you can enter it. Or you have a, a, a mountain in the back. You know, you cannot say, okay, you can say within the fiction, but yeah. in the reality of the game even, you can't say, oh, if we were to go close to that mountain, we will see in detail. No, that mountain only exists in this blurred, not fully realized way. So uh, the idea that I like of Nicholas Fern is to make the comparison between this paradox of incompletely programmed reality and quantum physics. Claiming that in the same way as we are not supposed, for example, to approach a mountain in the background of the game, if, of course, it's not part of the game, in the same way, and I like this idea, in the same way we have quantum indeterminacy or uh, incompleteness because, to put it bluntly, God underestimated us. God created the world and he thought, wait a minute, humans are too stupid to move beyond the atom. So I will stop programming in there. We were unfortunately a little bit too bright, you know, and moved beyond atom and ah, uh ah, -uh, you didn't program it completely there. You know, like that it's the same incomplete, but now comes the crucial point. Of course, I'm an atheist. So is it possible to think this incompleteness without God, mm. you know, to think reality as incomplete without some divine mind, its perspective, and so on and I mean, so is this, on. Is, 
this version of the question, for example, that Heidegger asks is how we think human finitude, as other than a, a lack or... Yeah, but Heidegger is here yeah. an interesting... I really hate you because you are asking tough but the real question. <laughs> Can you ask me something like which movie did you see last or whatever? <laughs> Sorry, you're asking good questions. Exactly. You know why is Heidegger crucial for me here? Because what we witnessed, here I agree with Kentang Meyasu, in the 20th century is the triumph of, of course Heidegger would have rejected this term, but I think it's still, if properly read, appropriate, transcendentalism. This means, and this may sound paradoxical, since Heidegger always emphasized the ontological dimension, this means that ultimately we cannot ask this direct, naive question. Does the table exist? Do I have a soul? And so on. All we can do is to ask, within what hermeneutic horizon do things appear in such a way that we can ask this question? You know, for Heidegger, the Germans have this wonderful world, unhintergeber, means you cannot go behind. Mm. For Heidegger, this unhintergeber thing is what he calls Ereignis, the event of a disclosure of being, the way, the basic way things are disclosed to us, and epochally, historically, right? In medieval times, nature meant hierarchic, uh, meaningful order. In modernity, as we know, nature becomes this grey, endless universe, no values, just reality. Uh, values are only in our mind, and so on and so on. So, for Heidegger, we cannot go further. It's meaningless. Because uh, the ultimate, like, when, even when science, like quantum physics, mm. tries to analyze Big Bang, the origin of our universe, a Heideggerian would have said, but in order to approach in this way the question, being has already, reality, to put it naively, has already to be disclosed to you in a certain way. Mm. And uh, it's incredible to what extent this attitude becomes our daily bread. For example, okay, this is much more vulgar than Heidegger, but the predominant form of so-called continental French philosophy in the last decades was something that I'm tempted to call uh, uh, historicist discourse theory. Like, for a typical contemporary uh, continental so-called philosopher, if you ask me, does a human being have a soul? Mm. I would say, wait a minute, all that I can tell you is to describe an episteme, the field within which such a question can even be raised. You know, all we can do is this, and my big problem is, again, is this enough? Can we move beyond the transcendental? And for me, Hegel, Lacan, what I'm struggling with, is a way to say, yes, we can, but without falling into simple, and for me here, Kentel yeah. Mayasu and speculative realists are precisely two naive realists, uh, without falling into pre-Kantian objectivism. Mm. No, we should avoid this naivety of reality is out there, this paradoxical point where Lenin, at his worst, material empirical criticism, meets Karl Popper, who, it's interesting to know, great liberal critique of communism, but he admired Lenin's worst 
work. But you know, this idea of reality is out there, we endlessly approach it, and so on and so on. Mm. So how can we really break out of the transcendental horizon? Mm. The answer for me is Hegel, Lacan, and so on and so on. Um, so the, the upshot of what you just said is that you're not a continental philosopher, which is... Um, no, in some sense... Uh, no, sorry. Uh, I'm not a continental philosopher in this sense of transcendental historicism. Mm. On the other hand, but I am also not in the sense of, I try to be more productively eclectic, mm. not in a stupid way. I noted this in some of my books. Uh, did you notice how, and this is almost typical of continental philosophy in all its versions. Let's take Marx, let's take Derrida, let's take Heidegger, let's take analytical philosophy. With all their differences, they share something that, I don't know how to call it, uh, exclusionary totalization. Each of them describes his work or his orientation as a crucial cut break, which allows him to totalize all previous philosophy as mm. one big, okay, maybe not, for example, for Heidegger, all thinking hitherto is metaphysics, and his Philosophy breaks with metaphysics. For Derrida, metaphysics of presence. For Marxist, ideological idealism or whatever. For Derrida, again. For analytical philosophy, it's again. Philosophy which is not yet science. I don't accept this. I'm here on the side of Lacan or maybe Gilles Deleuze, mm. who try not to proceed in this negative totalization, like all guys, I'm sorry to put it so brutally, but all guys till me, even if very bright, were basically idiots, and only I finally see it the way it really is. But don't you get a version of that in the story that Hegel tells about the history of philosophy? Because the history of philosophy for Hegel is a, <coughs> is a preparation for speculative idealism, isn't it? Yeah, but what does Hegel's speculative idealism mean? It's not that now he finally knows all, because you know, this is important, isn't it? Yes, this is absolutely a crucial. Common, yeah. common misconception yeah. about yeah. what Hegel's... You know, to. just look at Hegel's work when, at the very final point of his system, the end of his uh, uh, lectures on the history of philosophy, when, as a good idealist, of course, he ends up with his own system, no, which is conclusion of it all, he says, this is where... We are today, for the time being, he even doubly relativizes it. Or, uh, for example, when he talks in his uh, philosophy of history, it's not so bad if you consider that Hegel uh, wrote this in 1820. When he talks about United States of America and then about Russia, he said, we cannot yet develop a full philosophical history of these countries because their century, not so bad to say it in 820, their century will be the 20th century. These countries did not yet, or in his most maligned part, uh, uh, philosophy of nature. Mm. Quite often he says, we can't say it, we don't know it enough. Mm. So I claim, I here follow a pretty good, I don't always agree with him, but He's not an idiot. <coughs> Robert Solomon, who wrote a book in the spirit of Hegel, where he says, what if what Hegel calls absolute knowing 
is precisely the opposite of this absolute opening, I know it all, is that at every historical period, you simply, if you go to the end, you, as it were, reach the limit. Mm. So that absolute knowing is not opposed to historicism, but it's historicism brought to its most radical extreme. It's, that's the limit. And precisely as such, Hegel, I think, opens up space for otherness. Hegel's mm. point is not, we now know it all. Hegel's point is, this is where we can be now. What is out there is an openness, mm. which is why I think, and that openness is out of reach for us, which is why I even think Hegel is more materialist, quite seriously, than Marx. Mm. Marx went a step further. Marx thought that we, as historical agents, at least the privileged ones, proletarians, communists, have access to some historical necessity which points even towards the future, like how, out of the contradictions of the present society, we have at least the possibility of communist society, so that you can know history even in the future, and then you can act as an agent of this knowledge. Mm. For Hegel, this is too idealist. Mm. And I think that paradoxically, Hegel is here more open to contingency. I like to use here, with yes. this I will finish, don't worry. I think that for Hegel, it is no future. But I like very much, I discovered this by chance, you know how in French at least, and only in a couple of other languages, I don't know in English, you have two words for future. You have future, like future, and then you have avenir, avenir, to come. But they are not the same. Mm. Future means also can mean the continuation of the, like, once and future king, the same idiot. Avenir, to come, points towards a radical break. It's true openness. So I claim, yes, mm. for Hegel there is no future because there is avenir. There is no philosopher more open to things to come than Hegel. So if all one knows of Hegel is what one's read in the pages of Derrida, this, this Hegel is unrecognizable. This is a Hegel of radical contingency. Yeah, um, but wait a Here I respectfully disagree with Derrida because yeah. Derrida, we don't have time to go now, Derrida was terribly to the end struggling with Hegel. Mm. On the one hand, obviously Hegel should have been the absolute other of Derrida. Everything is in a closure, everything finds its place, no opening, no contingency, but Derrida was not an idiot. He knew it all the time that it's not as simple as that, you know. So Derrida is, for example, which is why it's so interesting to read that wonderful book by French lady Hegelian, Catherine Malabou. To student which, of Derrida's. Yes, student of Derrida's to which uh, Derrida wrote a wonderful review of this book, which is translated in English version. I yeah. think published with Princeton University Press as Forward. Don't mention other publishers. Well, verse. Uh, this is sorry, a verse. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Princeton is just small guys will be squashed by Verso in two, three years. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, seriously, where you can see how she almost converted Derrida. All these big traumas, but is Hegel really simply the ultimate metaphysician of presence? Already in his early work, Derrida, when asked, is there one philosopher in all the history of philosophy who is closest to your difference? The answer was automatic, Hegel. Mm. Mm. I mentioned earlier the, the political stakes of this book and of this rereading mm. of, of Hegel. Um, and I want to move the conversation on, on, onto that now. Um, 
central to this, um, the political aspect of the book is your connection of Hegel with Lacan. Yeah. Um, now you write... Where Lacan is just an instrument for me to read Hegel. Yeah. I openly admit. Um, now, one of the things you get from Lacan is the following. I'm going to read a, a passage from the book. You say, Lacan unveiled the illusions on which capitalist reality, as well as its false transgressions, are based. So the question then is, what for you, Hegel, adds to Lacan? And it seems to me that for you, it's a refusal of Lacan's conclusion that we are condemned to domination, that there is no horizon beyond... This Be is beyond an extremely tricky question. Beyond I, I really hate you even more than I thought possible <laughs> because you are really asking the crucial questions. You know what I mean? This is the key, yes. Yeah. And I think things are here dramatically undecided for me because, you know, Lacan was not always moving in this direction. Mm. There are even elements of a... And incidentally here, Lacan is, again, a wonderful parallel similar to Hegel. You know that you have two main figures of Hegel till recently. Conservative Hegelians, where you British did not, did, do, did, did 100 years ago and more some horrible yeah. joke, you know, MacTaggart, Bradley and so on. That is to say, Hegel is the philosopher of the hierarchic organic order. And then radical leftist negativity, yes, revolution, blah, blah, <laughs> approach Hegel. The new thing in the last decades mm. is a liberal Hegel. Mm. No? Hegel, Hegel of recognition. Yeah, of Hegel of anerkennung, recognition. And it's so interesting that exactly the same with Lacan. Traditionally, there was a conservative Lacan, mm. you know, the line which is, Lacan was never there, but he had some pupils whose claim was the condition of normality is normal paternal authority, Pierre Legendre, if the name tells you, is the condition of normality is paternal authority, symbolic law, the problem of today's uh, 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 permissive societies, paternal, uh, paternal authority is disappearing, so we have instability, outbursts, narcissistic violences, and so on, so the only thing can sa that can save us is return to paternal authority. On the other hand, we had from the very beginning, kind of a radically left Lacanism, like all young Turkish Lacanians at that point, 60s, 70s, were Maoists mm -hmm. at that point. Unfortunately, what is emerging now in exact homology with Hegel is liberal Lacanianism. And here I part ways with a guy to whom I owe almost all. He introduced me to Lacan, Lacan's officially designated inheritor, Jacqueline Miller, who unfortunately now moves in this direction. The theory is this one. Every social field is based on imaginary, symbolic identifications, illusions, and so on. Politics is, sphere, is a sphere of illusions. All we can do is, A, accept the necessity of these illusions, and here Miller even goes to the end in this cynical attitude of some conservative thinkers like, uh, who was your great critic of French uh, Revolution? Uh, Burke. Burke, yes. Like, you know, illusions may be wrong, but don't mess, don't analyze them too closely. If you disturb the illusions, there will be social, like, better not to know too much yeah. about some things and so on. So, uh, the idea is, okay, let's not Let's not try to do too much. Remember, if you are too radical in politics, you just bring chaos. For example, Miller even gave a concrete example of Italy, a modest one, totally wrong, I think. 
it started with, you know, remember 20 years ago, Lemani Pure, the pure hand, mm. that emergence against the corruption of the political establishment, which ruined Christian democracy, eh, you got Berlusconi. His Majesty, you see, don't mess with appearances, things can only get worse. So it's a kind of an enlightened, cynical attitude. I don't think this is the only Lacan. If nothing else, I admire late Lacan's ramblings on how to organize the Freudian school. I call this, ironically, his Leninist writings, mm -hmm. because he failed. But it's a, an extremely important struggle of precisely how to construct a social space, mm. in this case, the space of a group, a uh, uh, society, collective of psychoanalysts, without the master signifier, without the master figure. He was terribly struggling with mm. this, and this is, this is even today for us the key emancipatory problem, mm. because the big conservative element motive is what? You can have your stupid Tahrir Square or what, but the day after things will return to normal. Mm. Do they have to? Is there a chance for egalitarian society? Not just to explode from time to time, but, you know, to stabilize itself as it were into a new order. So there's a parallel here between your <coughs> rejection of liberal Lacanianism and the critique that you've been develop developing for the past five years or so of um, certain attempts to uh, develop a politics of resistance. I'm thinking in particular of your controversy with Simon, mm -hmm. Simon Critchley. Um, there's a moment at the end of the introduction to the book. And it's I don't know the name that you mentioned, but okay, yeah. I mean, ontologically, I don't know. I know who you are. Um, you, I deny you, the existence. Sorry. You reject what you call the... Um, the spiritualization of revolt and the, the abandonment of the radical um, emancipatory project in favor, mm. of, um, in favor of a politics of, of, the lesser, of the lesser evil. Yeah, but, uh, okay, this is one problem, but the problem I had with the, uh, if I may speak the language of uh, Harry Potter, the one whose, whose name shouldn't be named. Yep. <laughs> he should remain nameless. He should remain nameless, yes, is another one. It's even a f part of a friendly dialogue with my otherwise good friend, Alain Badiou. Mm. What I didn't like in that orientation is this idea that, A, the state is here to stay, state apparatus, capitalism, and so on. But B, authentic politics have, has to take place outside state. So, authentic politics should not get engaged in power, but just withdraw from state mechanism, but you call this uh, uh, subtraction, subtract itself, resist, but not risk, like that you find with those whose names should not be mentioned, even, you know, thoughts like uh, don't resist, don't strike back with violence, yeah. because if you do it, then you end up in mimesis being even, you know, you become the same as they are. Now, this is for me a very interesting thought. So in, yeah, I first learned from him that, so in 1940, we should have said Hitler is horrible, but don't resist him, it's mimesis. If we strike back, we will, and so on. So again, my point is that uh, I cannot, what I don't like, is this, I see here an opening for a very comfortable, safe position. Mm. I, I can be in my safe position resisting 
uh, and when somebody asked me, okay, how would you have do it? Do you have a plan? Oh, sorry, sorry, this would mean mimesis. I became like state power and so on and so on. I, I here believe in heroically intervening, whatever, wherever you can, which is why, and that's why I stopped that polemics with the name, whose yeah. name, because, you know, he all the time painted this ridiculous, even psychological portrait of me. I proposed just to sit and wait for some radical, violent moment. No, I, I said, in the quote that he likes to quote, I said, Sometimes doing nothing is the most subversive thing to do. Sometimes, and my attitude here is extremely pragmatic. Sometimes when whatever you do will be reintegrated without provoking any real change, the most even threatening thing to do is to reject dialogue. And I was deeply confirmed in this by Occupy Wall Street. You know, the reaction of benevolent liberals like Bill Clinton was what in box is called clinching. Oh, fine, let's come together, let's debate how can we translate your protest into concrete measures. But this wasn't a time to do that, because in today's field, whatever positive proposals would have been, would have, you only can speak it was only possible there to speak the language of the enemy. So this is this year. Sometimes in wars, tense situation, you have to, like against Hitler, if I may be pathetic, of course you have to strike with all brutal violence you can imagine. Sometimes, I'm very pragmatic here, the only thing to do, I hope we all agree, are strategic, strategically well-chosen, they may even appear minor, particular, gestures. Let me give you one example and then yeah. I stop. It's interesting. It's so fashionable today, Tariq Ali and so on, to make fun of Obama, ooh, the traitor and so on. I still have a sympathy for Obama. Why? Because first, you know, why disappointment? It's as if these guys thought that what, Obama will introduce socialism to the United States or whatever. <laughs> why do I still have an appreciation of Obama? Healthcare, universal healthcare. I know that the result is a total compromise. But can you just imagine what kind of a traumatic sore point this was for the American establishment if even now they brought it to the Supreme Court and so on? Why? Why is this an excellent example? Because on the one hand, it obviously disturbs the very foundation of, let's call it naively, popular American ideology. No? Which is freedom of choice and yeah. so on, not seeing how freedom of choice is meaningful only against the background of a well-regulated state apparatus, social customs, and so on and so on. But at the same time, that's why I like it, it's not an impossible demand, you know, in yeah. the sense of let's do something crazy, radically communist. It's something very realistic, which can be done. There is universal healthcare in Canada, in Scandinavian countries, even somewhere else. So this is, for me, maybe the, also one of the great models of how to act. Act, pose a demand which is very realistic, local, but who knows what the global, at least ideological, consequences will be. Spoken like a true social democrat. Sorry? Spoken like a true social democrat. No, because I think that at the... the I, first, let me tell you something clearly, because maybe this was the wrong impression which I often provoked with my 
I admit it, I like to provoke and I got into trouble, you know, yeah. like when I said he, the problem with Hitler was that he wasn't yeah. violent enough. There were some misunderstandings. Yes, because your, your critics, including him, yeah, yeah, yeah. including he who shall yeah. remain nameless, um, they dismiss you as a nostalgist for political violence, for dictatorship, and so on. So perhaps you yeah, can I find this address this a little bit ironic in view of my past, where for opposing communist regime, my God, I was four or five years unemployed, and so on and so on. I was never allowed to teach in my country. Let's forget this. Yeah. What I want to say is this. Hey, even with liberalism, I'm not as blindly critical as it may appear. Look, liberalism originally, and I will never forget this in a good sense, did something wonderful, which was, remember the concrete historical circumstances. Liberalism was the answer originally, if I remember it correctly, to a desperate predicament of European religious yeah. wars. And it tries to answer the question how, even if our basic metaphysical religious commitments, which were not just worldview commitments, but concrete commitments about how to organize your life, they are opposed, more or less radically. Mm. How can we nonetheless live together? How to construct a shared space? So this modest liberalism, which kind of, uh, again, emphasizes the modesty, finitude maybe of our predicament. Yeah. Nothing bad about it. The same thing with social democracy. I mean, I will say something which will disappoint maybe some of the leftists. And I will say that with all the criticism we can make of it, and with all the points about how this dependent on colonial exploitation, but nonetheless, can you imagine any period in the history of humanity where such a large percentage of people did live such lead such relatively prosperous safe and free lives as in social democratic western europe in the last 50 60 years my problem here is that these times are over mm. this is why i'm precisely not nostalgic neither for stalinism which failed miserably. I still accept the greatness of Lenin, but in a dialectical way. By dialectical, I mean, I don't play these stupid games, Lenin was good, then Stalin screwed it up, you know, and then you can go to the end and say, if only Lenin were to survive five years more and made a pact with, with Trotsky, oh, we would have what? A thriving social democratic Soviet Union or what? But, uh, so again, in the same sense, we have to accept that Although, and this is the true historical tragedy, it's easy to say Soviet Union had a great chance, Stalin screwed it up. It's also easy to demonize it from the very beginning. Mm. You know, this game of no, totalitarianism was already there. And then you can move back and back. It was already in Lenin. It was already in Marx. It was already in Rousseau. Then you, and then, yes, you can go back for Sloterdijk. It was already in Christianity. For uh, Adorno and some others, it was already in Plato. Mm. The most radical answer here with which I tend to agree, but it makes me drop the entire line, is Adorno and Horkheimer in Dialectic of Enlightenment, which was already there at the very beginning of the first prehistoric magical practices, you know. It's meaningless. What I'm saying is that what is really difficult to think is that on the one hand, it is undoubted, you just have to read really good histories, that October Revolution was not a coup d'etat of three, four guys there. It was an authentic explosion of emancipatory energy. How to think 
the inner logic, which gave birth out of this process to Stalinism, without renouncing, you know, this is the true historical tragedy. And this is the, my only soft point with Stalinism. No mercy for Stalinism. What I simply claim is that you don't find the same tragic aspect in Nazism. You cannot say Nazism yeah. was originally a great emancipatory <laughs> project. Hitler just screwed it up, whatever. No, Nazism is much more vulgar. There were bad guys, Hitler and his friends, who said, if we take power, we will do some bad, horrible things. And look what happened. They took power and they did, really did these horrible, bad things. You cannot say the same. You have an authentic, tragic split in Bolshevik movement. That's my only... Can we go back to the more recent, uh, as you put it, explosions of em emancipatory yeah. energy? Let, let's talk a bit more about the Occupy movement, which you alluded to earlier. Yeah. Um, at the end of the book, you, you, you write the following, and this reads to me like a measured critique of Occupy Wall Street. Absolutely. Um, you, you write, while it's thrilling to enjoy the pleasures of horizontal organization, in quotation marks, of protesting no, crowds... it's not this horizontal, it's just of protesting immediate democracy, no representation, yeah, yeah. Of protesting crowds with their e egalitarian solidarity and free open-ended debates. These debates will have to coalesce not only around some new master signifiers, but also in concrete answers to the old Leninist question, what is to be done? Can you um, yeah. develop that critique no, uh, of uh, Again, people? this is now I will give you, sorry to talk like this, my party line, mm -hmm. no? A, I fully, really fully supported, support and engaged in Occupy Wall Street, but I think it's the, what I call, ironically already in my parallax view, Bartleby point. The message is I would prefer not to. The insight of Wall Street is a double negative insight, and it's very important. On the one hand, isn't it clear that the insight is that in contrast to earlier protests, where there were usually one-issue protests, you know, against war in Iraq, racism, whatever, here we have, for the first time in last decades, a big protest movement which targets the capitalist system as such. Mm. The premise was there is some structural fault problem with the capitalist system as such, and even more importantly, I claim, the second point, that not against democracy as such, mm. but the de-existing institutional democratic mechanisms that we have are not strong enough to deal with this problem. Mm. What I didn't find, and I think we shouldn't even look in, in uh, Occupy Wall Street, is positive answers. The moment yeah. you look for that, I'm sorry to tell you, I was there in Wall Street, in Frankfurt, in Amsterdam, somewhere else, you get platitudes. You get like, money should serve people, people should not serve money. Well, as I put it in all brutal, as with all possible brutal acerbic irony, uh, Hitler would have immediately fully agreed with this and so on. You know, all, all this general stuff, uh, uh, especially I was suspicious about the critique of financial capitalism. The problem is not this. The problem is what happened more generally in today's capitalism as such that made this role of banks possible. Mm. Especially I'm opposed to any moralism. Sorry, but bankers always were greedy and so on. You know, the problem is not 
to make bankers more honest or whatever. No, the problem is to reorganize society so that bankers will be given just maybe a little bit less opportunity to, to realize their gains. So, which uh, uh, is why, although I again agree with Occupy Wall Street, but I'm always obsessed with this, what we call the morning after, the day after, you know, for me, these big enthusiastic moments, we all cry, one million people there on the square and so on, come relatively cheap. The true, they happen, it's wonderful, but the true test is what will really change when afterwards things, as we usually say, return to normal. Will there be any changes felt there? If no, then we are in this sad, cynical, cyclical worldview where from time to time people explode, but then things return to normal, more or less, and so on and so on. Which is why, not out of any fashionable <coughs> tendencies, I went to Greece <coughs> eight days ago, I fully supported Syriza and so on. I admire their heroism. They know that their situation is almost without hope. They don't have enough people, cadre, to do it properly. But what I like is precisely that they didn't adopt this resistance state is non-authentic position. They know their situation is terrifying. You have two big parties which brought corruption into Greece, clientelism and so on, and you have this unheard of paradox. I hope you noticed it, that while the West is repeating this stupid, you know, Greeks are lazy people who don't pay taxes and so on. And it was especially ironic to hear, uh, how is she called, Christine, Christine Lagarde. Lagarde to say this. It was Guardian which discovered she today, she is not paying <laughs> taxes, no. Uh, but what I want to say is that, uh, but then the same West, you know, appalled at uh, Greeks laziness, uh, cheating and so on, whom does the West openly, brutally even, support in the elections? PASOK and New Democracy, the two parties which embody this corruption. The history of Greece in the last decades is the history of these two parties exchanging in power and they brought this corruption. And so again, I admire Syriza for instead of adopting this comfortable position, you know, like we stay outside, we just resist, we posit impossible demands and so on. It's, they were not afraid to make this, it's not only Syriza, yeah. it's also, how is it called, democratic left or whatever. And if you want a proof of how radical this move is, you know who is the most ferocious wild opponent of Syriza and democratic left? Ah. The KKI, the Greek Communist Party, which is a pretty strong one, gets mm. 7 to 10 percent, and it's the last authentic Stalinist party of serious part. Like, I saw it, I couldn't believe it with my eyes. They still regularly reprint Stalin's complete works as their Bible, and for them, uh, the traitor is not Gorbachev ruining Soviet Union, the traitor mm. is Khrushchev, mm. for this, and so on. So, now comes the paradox. Uh, the communists hate so much Syriza 
that they are ready, even their signs, to make a pact with new democracy, mm -hmm. as they did it often in the last decades. Their idea is the situation is not yet mature enough. We have to wait for a pure revolutionary situation when workers will take over, blah, blah, blah. But you know, here I am. It's like the PCF in 68. Yeah, yeah. But here I am uh, a partisan, in spite of all her illusions, of Rosa Luxemburg, no? who said, you know, if you wait for the right moment, the right moment will never arrive. The right moment is, emerges through repeated premature attempts, failures, and so on and so on. Which is why, just to conclude, again, many leftists will maybe hate me for that. I found in its basic tendency, there are many details that I don't agree, quite sympathetic the text published in, I think it's still the last, last issue, if it's still the last of New Left Review by T.J. Clark, yeah. uh, uh, left without, with no future. I think his basic double insight, A, that are we aware that the main result of this unrest of the last couple of years is an incredible demonstration of the defeat, at least, of the traditional left. That is to say, till 2005 or 8, when we lived in relative prosperity and so on, at least we, in some Western countries, the typical leftist attitude was the Cassandra attitude. No? Ah, this uh, prosperity is just a false illusion. You will see the crisis will emerge, there will be chaos, then it will be our moment. Now, more or less exactly this happened. There is universal crisis and so on, and we have protests, even violent protests here and there, and the left, if anything, totally proved its impotence. Mm. I'm sorry, but I didn't see any, except from some vague Keynesianism, like let's control financial capital and so on. Now, the moment has come when the left should have come and say, you see, uh, the unrest is everywhere, now we will take the role of organizing... So there's no political economy? Yeah, yeah. This, and second thing where I agree with T.J. Clark, although I don't draw the same conclusions mm. as he does, is that the, the left till now, in all its versions, radical left, was playing this game of, how should I put it, waiting for the event, you know. Now we may be marginal, but there will be a moment when finally the authentic working class will awaken, and this will be the event. Like even at the end of the empire, uh, Hart and uh, Negri claim this. Okay, now we have just marginal multitudes, but the moment will come that multitudes will condense and uh, erased the state and, well, took over the entire social body. So this waiting for the event, as T.J. Clark mm -hmm. wonderfully uses this very nasty metaphor, is just if there is a subterranean terracotta army of true proletarian warriors and let's be patient and wait for them to awaken <laughs> and, you know. I agree with him that, sorry, this moment will never happen. Mm -hmm. We have to abandon it. And here, you should be careful what T.J. Clark is saying. He is not saying in this social democratic uh, 
in the bad sense, uh, opportunism. This means there will nothing serious will happen. We can no, no. He says there will probably be chaos, disorder. We cannot even imagine what can happen. But this awakening, this big awakening moment, will not happen. Mm. Now the conclusion here. I differ from him a little bit. The conclusion for me is not so. Let's just engage in short-term social democratic politics. Why not? Because I'm a little bit more of a pessimist. I think that nonetheless, the lesson of the last years is that, again, as I always repeat it, the true illusion is not, oh, there will be a radical change. The true illusion is that things can go on indefinitely. Only if we do a little bit of austerity, a little bit of this, somehow we can imagine to survive. I think for a series of reasons, from ecology to the imminent structure of capitalism to biogenetics and so on and so on, we are approaching a zero point. This zero point can be postponed, whatever, but things cannot go on indefinitely the way they do. I mean, if we don't do anything, things will change. My thesis is simply that we are slowly already approaching a new whatever you call it, we don't even have a name, expert rule, authoritarian, whatever society, which, again, we should not simply use the old phrases. It will not be new fascism or whatever. It will be, again, here I want with all sincerity, without any irony, bow deeply and express my admiration of your British artistic cinema genius, one of the first to get this point was Terry Gillian in the film Brazil. You know, this wonderful portrayal of a future society which is authoritarian, but at the same time, it's not this traditional fascism. No, it's crazy, even a little bit comical. And I think Berlusconi was yes. the first step towards the rule of Brazil. No, there will be other Brazil guys. So we're talking about a sort of authoritarian market state or something. Yeah, and again, as I always repeat it, this is for me what is truly unsettling in mm. China. And again, I wish them all the well, it's that till now, again, give to the devil what one should admit to the devil. Till now, one can reasonably claim that whenever capitalism was given a chance to develop, even if it demanded 10, 20 years of dictatorship, once things start to run, it always generated a strong demand for democracy. Mm. What I'm afraid is that this time is over that countries like China, Singapore, and more and more others signal that there is a new type of capitalism which absolutely should not be dismissed as something Asiatic, no? Yeah. If it's simply Asiatic, then Berlusconi is an Asiatic figure. Okay, maybe, I have doubts, no? But what I mean is that uh, a capitalism which is, if anything, even more dynamic, creative, destructive than our Western liberal capitalism, but which I wouldn't be here too hopeful for those who uh, wait for another Tiananmen. Yeah. I don't think it imminently needs uh, democracy to function. Now, this is the problem. So again, my message to liberals is not you liberal traitors. My message is if you think seriously about protecting liberal values, freedom, dignity, whatever yeah. they are, only an alliance with radical left can do it. I think on that point, with that chastening analysis of the present conjuncture, it's a good place to stop. But, um, we will I'm really grateful for your good questions. Well, thank I you. Mean. We will invite questions from the audience, mm -hmm. but I'll 
First, uh, and I'm grateful you to join me in I'm grateful for your one thing to you and all the others, because there I get in, in uh, Joseph Goebbels' mood of drawing the gun, that no one will use the expression, I think so at least, the Elvis of cultural theory, you know. <laughs> I'm deeply grateful for that. Slavo so, Now, I think there is at least one roving microphone. Um, I'm sure there are questions probably from the leftists against whom uh, Shalavoy was railing in that conversation. No, but I hope it was clear. I mean, yeah. I still... My, my God, what more can you do? I was, I supported Syriza. I know when violence is needed. For example, to be very clear, in India, when I was, I met the Naxalit Maoists around Hyderabad, yeah. and I support them. I think that there, much more tough violence is needed. So, no, no, I'm not a uh, 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 softy here. You know what I mean? But I'm just a brutal realist. Don't, can I, just to finish, to make this point which is crucially clear. What I claim is that there is also something that I cannot but call principled opportunism. You pretend to be radical and because secretly you know very well that in today's constellation this amounts to nothing, you know. And this is what academics like. Academics like a revolution, but a radical one. But it should happen far, you know, <laughs> so that you can here pursue your academic career, like Cuba, Vietnam, today Venezuela, and so on, you know. Like, I think I quote him, Jean-Jacques Rousseau provided a one, well, she said that philosophers that I know love Tartars because this, she didn't mean Tartar steak, but yeah. the people, or Mongols, because this makes it easier for them to ignore the plight of the poor here in front of yeah. their doors, no? So this is my point. I mean, realistic, but not in the pragmatic sense just, but yeah. realistic in sense, how can we really start get things moving, but of course, with, uh, and this is also the reason. Can I just do this? And yes. Why? Because I'm often asked this obvious, as I ironically refer to it, PR, public relations question. Many people tell me, okay, if I look closely, what you propose, it's not so crazy. I agree with it, no? M most of it. But why do you stick to this crazy word communism? It's bad. You will not mobilize people in this way. Well, I have even three, four answers to this. This may be suspicious, because when you have too many answers, it means no. But the first one would have been, there still is some tradition clearly identified as part of communism, which I think is precious. And I don't mean by this early Bolshevism of this, but things like, for example, Spartacus, peasant rebellions, you know, these radical millenarian rebellions. Sorry, I'm not ready to in the style of Nick Cohn and others, you know, to dismiss them as proto-totalitarian. There is something great in this authentic, popular outburst. Second thing, all... You're going to give us all four answers. Sorry? You're going to give us all four but answers. But they are very yeah. short. Yeah. Okay, I'll be brief. Second answer, as I always claim, the problem that I see today is 
communist problem in the sense that all the crucial problems today I see are problems of commons, ecology, our commons, intellectual property, our, this is the problem. Uh, the third one, I don't have a better word, with all the trauma associated to this term, all other names that offer themselves can be instantly reappropriated. Democracy, ah, ah, it can mean anything you want. Uh, uh, socialism, my God, Hitler will, uh, and so on. Justice, with justice, you know, and so on and so on. And the last reason which I like most, we know we are approaching dangerous times. It's mm -hmm. not easy to do things. Maybe we will have to do large, sometimes even violent things, and to avoid what, I hate the term, but just to use it as a kind of a wrong, but nonetheless signal, totalitarian temptation. So it may sound cynical, but I mean it in a deadly serious way. Isn't it nice to have as your master signifier a term which reminds you all the time how wrong can, can things go? <laughs> you know, like that you are all the time aware that you are playing with fire. For these four reasons, I am still a communist. Thank you. Any questions? <laughs> Don't disappoint me. Don't fall for such cheap tricks, rhetorically. <laughs> there must be some questions. There is yeah. a... You didn't do your Stalinist job distributing uh, questions no, I before? Didn't. There's one. There is, yeah. Please. I hope the mic will work because yeah. I... Hi there. Um, this might be a bit of a non sequitur, so I apologize if it is, but you mentioned in, um, as part of the unnamed coming disaster of, yeah. of, you mentioned biogenetics briefly. Maybe that was for no particular yeah. reason, but could, would you mind elaborating on that? I mean, it seems if there is a kind of technological element to, to the way things are heading, do you have particular? Uh, sorry. I didn't hear all the words, so basically, what was the point of my reference to biogenetics? Yes. Okay, no, I can, uh, you know why this interests me? Because on the one hand, the more that I learn about it, the more I see it as, I hate this word, but I don't have a better word, a challenge, in the sense that, you know, Virginia Woolf, I don't like her, she was a frigid bitch, I agree with Darian Leader that Daphne du Maurier is much better writer than <laughs> But she used, I think, I even know, don't know apropos what event in 1910, didn't she say famously something like, at this day human nature yeah. changed. And I think that something like this is happening today. The moment, and the moment is not only approaching, it's up to a point here where two things will happen. A, it will be possible to, with different biochemical or uh, uh, genetic or whatever neuronal interventions to directly steer, influence our thought process processes or basic characteristics. Like, if you don't believe me, okay, this is an eccentric madness, but it's good to read it. Go to Google and put in DARPA, you know it? D-A-R-P-A. This is a big public research program by FBI, CIA, whatever, I don't know which agency, which aims at, and money is already widely spent on it. The program is this one. How to describe, not at the level of meaning, but at the new neuronal level, what happens in your brain 
when you accept some ideology. Of course, the official idea is how do people become fundamentalists. And with the express aim to then block people from becoming fundamentalists, not by arguments or whatever, but by a direct new neuronal intervention. Now, I find this, I, I'm not a classical humanist, I will not say terrifying, but I will say definitely something new. Mm. You know, that <laughs> you fight ideology not by propaganda, not even by external violence, but simply by directly naturalizing it, a certain ideological, et and into your brain processes and then trying to regulate these processes. Second thing, this is at their beginning, but don't underestimate it. This perspective of a direct link between inside and outside, in the sense of, you know, for example, today in a very primitive form, but it is here, they can already wire your brain and make a computer understand some basic orders and so that then this can be attached to a robot and like you can literally move objects with your mind. Like you here in London did it, I think it was presented some two years ago, some wheelchair for crippled people or how mm. you say it politically correct. Moving challenge, <laughs> challenge people. The idea is that you don't even need Stephen Hawking's finger. No, you just sit, you think forward, it goes forward. Okay, my problem here is it looks nice. You are like God, you think it happens. The problem is that what goes out also goes in. No, like they can only influence you here. And I, okay, I will not lose time here to talk too much. All I want to say is nonetheless that these things are now much more already being developed than you think. For example, it's not only one aspect of new warfare is emerging now like these drones. Yep. The other one is psychological warfare, but again, no longer in the old sense of, you know, propaganda, even brainwashing. For example, I know for sure that all major powers, United States, China, and so on, are already very far in this very simple direction. They establish that where you, when you are in panic and fear, your brain emits certain electromagnetic mm -hmm. waves. They already succeeded in reproducing these waves, and I was told it works quite nicely. Like, let's say I'm a soldier fighting you, I don't fight, I press a button, this area is covered by those waves, and you are all literally starting to shit out of fear in panic and so on. So I'm not here painting a, a pessimist picture. I try to avoid both extremes. You're one describing is this, reality. Yeah, one is this humanist, no? Yeah. Oh, we, are, we, we, will, we will all become robots at the end of humanity. The other one is this Ray, Ray Kurzweil and yeah. others, oh, post-human, new era. I'm just saying very modestly, we have to think what are the consequences, what are the stakes, what are the possible problems. For example, one thing that is clear here is how biogenetic is more and more already becoming a class issue. On the one hand, you have the privileged, for which there will be clinics to do whatever you want with your child, blah, blah, blah. And this is the other part of China. I was told that there are already a dozen or so clinics in the suburb of Shanghai where 
rich people from the West come to have their children genetically modified and so on and so on. On the other hand, for ordinary people, is the idea of mass genetic control and so on, which I'm sorry, I always repeat this, but I find it crucial. When I was in Beijing, I was given a program of uh, that, uh, genetic whatever subdivision of Chinese Academy of Sciences, where they say openly the goal of development of biogenetics in China is to regulate, to the profit of Chinese people, of course, physical and psychological properties of the people. So I'm not saying, now, ooh, horror, horror. I'm saying something is happening. We have to think what this means. The stakes are high. It's very modest. Is there another, another question? I'm Greek and... You are Greek? Yes. Yeah. And Where do you stand then? Sorry? Where do you stand? So I'll tell you now. Uh, yeah. mo most of my friends um, want to vote for either... They, they are disappointed with uh, New Democracy or Basok, and they want to uh, vote something else, like uh, uh, Stefanos Manos, who has been... Uh, and Dora Bakoyani, who are basically were part of the New Democracy, and since the 1980s, uh, they openly wanted to privatize anything down to public toilets. So I've been trying to tell them uh, why they should vote for Syriza. And what I realize is that I'm not sure they, it's what they want. What I'm saying is that in order for these governments, in, in order for these governments to work, you have to have a mentality where every day you get involved you worry about what's happening in politics and you're willing to, to, to uh, go against the, the government, that the, the party that you already voted in four years if they disappoint you. I think that most people want to be secure rather than free. And this is an old, really old question that goes back to ancient Greece. Do you think that people want to be free or secure? No, I'm an open pessimist here. I don't have any illusions. Why do we try to deprive them this right of you being know, secure. Uh, what I'm, I see, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, it's purely yeah. vocal. I maybe have at my age some problems. I'm not sure I got all the implications of what you said, but I, what I would say is this. I talked, my God, with Alexis Tsipras there. We had a long, the boss of Syriza, we had a long of conversation and uh, I warned him, the, I mean, he also knows, he's not an idiot, I mean, that uh, like, you cannot count on some kind of a constant ecstatic mobilization. The great majority of the people, even if they will be at some point either enthusiastically for Syriza or ready to give them support, you know, people, as you said, they want peace, security, they want to see the results when things return to the normal. But what I got is an interesting answer. Uh, what they told me is that, you know, and I believe them from what I heard about their program and so on. Look, this was, I think that the image in the media, these are some lunatic leftists who will now just abandon Europe, go out and so on. This is not true. They are systematically painted like it. Why? Because it makes me so sad because I think that probably they will lose for this reason. I read one of the most disgusting texts in my life in one of the last issues of, maybe you know it, Forbes magazine. Yep. 
where the title is like, let the Greeks have communism. No? And the idea is this one. Greeks dream about radical change. What Europe should do is throw them out, put a cordon, break all uh, connection with them, and then, literally, it's formulated like this, sit down, relax, and enjoy the country in chaos, starvation, and so on. And then the conclusion of the text is quite brutal. The point is to use Greece to give to anyone who dreams about some kind of a radical progressive change a lesson for once and all. This is what you get if you play with us. Mm. You know, and again, they are aware of this. And uh, their problem is, I spoke, they don't perceive themselves as radical lunatics. For them, and I totally agree with them, lunacy was in power till now in Greece. Lunacy is in Brussels. I mean it literally. Did you notice two strange things about the, and I'm well known, I call myself ironically, progressive racist, you no, know, like, I like to make fun of people, but I include my own people into it, no? This is what I dream makes it progressive, no? So, but, what I wanted to say is that, okay, Greeks, lazy, whatever, but two things bother me about, first, I think this is even geographically not true. You know what this man is? Like, very primitive, almost racist reasoning. Look, look at Greek countryside. It's rocks, very little earth, mountains, well, you have to work like crazy, to, you know what I mean, like, even if we accept this imminently racist topic that some people are lazy by nature, I don't think Greeks are the right candidate, but more seriously, uh, two things are strange from Europe. Did you notice how all these austerity measures, rescheduling the debt that they are doing again and again, something very weird is happening logically or mass psychologically. We, they, all know that these plans are illusions. Either Greeks will not repay the debts or with Nordberg, and nonetheless they cling to them. Like it's, they cling to it although they know it's an illusion, that it will not work in this way. Second thing connected to this, did you notice how the pressure on Greeks by Europe clearly has the structure of what in psychoanalysis is called superego. Superego as opposed to, I'm saying it naively, authentic morality, moral law. Why? What characterizes superego for Freud? First, it's an impossible demand. It's so harsh that the authority which bombards you with this demand knows and takes into account in advance that you will fail. And the whole point is then to mock you whatever to organize your failure. I think this is absolutely clearly what is, uh, what, is, what is going on here. So again, the dreams, illusions are there. The way, the impression I got, and it was a beautiful impression for Syriza, is it's not when moderate social democrats failed, we need authentic revolution, dictatorship. No, it's somebody has to bring a little bit of common sense. First, by cutting off their point of stopping austerity plan is not, fuck it, no, we want billions more, we just want to spend, is that just to admit that we all know that this will not work. They are ready to suffer 
I mean, Alexis, Kipras told me he has no illusion. There will be hard time. You know, it's not that, she, that, uh, that Syriza will print money or whatever. But it's just, their point is very simple one. The politics imposed now on Greece, precisely because, and here they gave me a good answer, it's not that they, they don't play these patriotic games, you know, which basically right-wingers are playing, although also some left, these tasteless metaphors, Germans are occupying us again, like in, when did they, 39, 40, I don't know, and so on, all that stuff. No, they admit openly that they are also guilty. They just say, my God, if you really think we are guilty, why do you then support, again, guys who, who embody this guilt? They see very honestly their task of, even more important than economy, they told me. What Greek needs is not a Marxist revolution in the standard sense of abolishing the state, but it's to try to bring a little bit more functional, less clientelist state apparatus, for example. Things like this, and not just violent nationalizations, but very selective. Tsipras told me wonderfully how we will have to do some nationalizations, but maybe even some local privatizations. Who knows? They are, they are very pragmatic at this level, and they have no illusions. They are sincerely pro-Europeans. They know we cannot, immediately I will stop, they know we cannot survive without Europe, he told me. Tsipras. And another thing which can, uh, 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 again, at uh, all levels, I admire this, how should I call it, uh, uh, pragmatic spirit which, uh, I don't know how to put it, uh, they know in a way, not that they are lost, they know that they are, that their task is not to bring glorious revolutionary time, but to bring common sense and clean the sheet after the others. Or as they put it to me, we are not the dreamers. We will have to clean the sheet which remained after, after the other people's dreams, you know. So again, I think it's a wonderful moment when the opposition between radical measures or pragmatic measures becomes obsolete in a way. You must be radical to a certain point uh, just, just to be truly pragmatic, which is why, again, the pressure on them is uh, incredible. Like, even I, since I was there the last Sunday, Costas Duzinas, my great friend, showed it to me on their site, New Democracy, attacked me yesterday from being a secret mentor of Tsipras, which is crazy, I met him once, but even more for already giving him instruction how to introduce uh, police terror and this dictatorship into Greece, which is ridiculous because the true tragedy of, 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 of Syriza and their other part, the new democracy, not the new democracy, the, the new left or whatever, is that they told me openly, you know, they are in their structure, the typical marginal leftist party used to four or five percent, all of a sudden they exploded into, I don't know, 25, maybe even more at the elections. Now, I will sound as a Stalinist, I know, but I say, like, if they, by a chance, will be able to co-form or form 
together with us, the government. Where are the cadre? Are they, they are aware that they will confront the enemy, not the capital, but the clientelist state apparatus. How to do this? How to even start doing this? You know, they don't have enough people and so on. They, I, I, but I, I admire their heroics. Instead of saying, let's withdraw and resist or whatever, no. They have the courage to do it, being fully aware in what deep shit they are. I admire this, sorry. I admire this. I think this. We've, we've probably got time for one very quick question because Slavoj is also going to sign some books um, outside mm. afterwards. Do you remember agreeing to do that? Uh, 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 yeah. I, unfortunately, I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, maybe we should carry the conversation by, uh, on by the books. Um, no, but let's do one more, yes. Let's do one more if there is If one. there is a thing I hate yeah. is that when people, if there will be people, wait in line and then an idiot comes and says, I don't have a book to sign, but I would really like to ask you a question. <laughs> and then some nightmarish thing comes like, in your book on page 300, you say this about Lacan. But on page 500 of a creech, Lacan says something different. Could you briefly improvise about that? At that point, I say, yes, maybe we shouldn't yet abolish death penalty. <laughs> to save... Hi, can I... Yeah. I've, I've got the mic, it's yeah. up here. Um, just, uh, you mentioned something that I wanted to ask anyway. It's about the racist stereotypes that lately are coming out of all the media and also yeah. that we get across in our day-to-day -day encounters with the rest of the people. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I was born in the 80s, so I, when I was a teen... Sorry, I didn't get it. He was one of... I, I was born in the 80s. I did, yes, sorry. And I'm Greek too, but that's besides the point. Yeah. Uh, and we grew up during the 90s as teens where everybody tried to convince us that you know all of Europe is getting together and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that there are no borders anymore that we travel around the Erasmus program was very important for yeah. us and we had a lot of yeah. leaflets given out to mm -hmm. teachers that you know we're all together is there a question yes yeah. but uh, s sorry I was just yeah, describing excuse me yeah. and uh, now, you see that all of this breaks down very quickly. And uh, even if this left uh, thing that is happening in Greece grows, at the same time you can feel the animosity between the different countries. The Greeks are especially not happy with the Germans, the Germans are not happy with us. And that happens between all the countries, the Spanish, the stereotypes, all of that. Do you see that this can get you know, we can get overcome that, or is it going to get worse? Because in my mind, it's just getting worse because people just want to, to get back in their cell, you know, cells yeah, but, with uh, SH. Uh, Thank you. I see, you know what would be for me, this doesn't really answer your question, but the starting point is that there is something fundamentally wrong in this approach, Greeks, Germans, and so on. If we reason in this way, we will never arrive at a universality. I think the only authentic universality is conflictual universality, universality of struggle. There is a struggle going on in Greece. In different form, the same struggle is going on in Germany. The same struggle is going on in France, here and there. And what I'm claiming is that the only way to overcome this, we Greeks, Germans, is to establish a solidarity, but not this 
UNESCO solidarity. Your culture is great, our culture is great, let's enjoy each other and so on. But again, solidarity of struggle. If, we, if there is no solidarity between what progressive Greeks are fighting for, what I hope some Germans will fight for or whatever, then we are lost, I claim. But again, you see my point. I'm absolutely for universality, but for universality of shared solidarity in struggle. And I think it works. Look, this is what I found as I wrote about it so magic, and I don't think it can be dismissed as some kind of imaginary illusion in Tahrir Square. You know, we saw there hundreds of thousands of people fighting for something. I mean, demonstrating for something. And all of a sudden, and I don't think this is an illusion, all that bullshit, multiculturalist, fake multi about, but do we understand them? What if they move in a different culture? What if they mean something else? It became, in a way, momentarily obsolete. Solidarity in struggle was here. And again, I know cynical conservatives will say, yeah, yeah, that was just the illusion. No, it wasn't an illusion. And if we don't find a way to operationalize, as to put it, this type of solidarity, then we are wrong. You know why? Because in, this is another problematic point by me, in, in contrast to people who think today's global capitalism is American monocultural, we all should look at Hollywood movies and so on. No, I claim that uh, economic globalization, universalization, finds its natural supplement in fixed cultural identities, mm. so that even if they are mixed, they somehow retain their identity. In other words, in a global universe, it's not that we will all be eating hamburgers. No, it is that uh, each of us will stick to its traditional identity, which will give us a falsely secure position to fight even more brutally in, in the global market, and so on and so on. This is, why, uh, this is why, again, I think that it is catastrophic to fight globalization with a reference to our particular identity threatened by it. No, globalization, if anything, is strengthening local identities. For example, let me come here to United Kingdom. It's for me strictly a sign of United Kingdom entering the global era that you have, uh, uh, that you have uh, Wales and Scotland at least Scotland, more and more moving towards independence. Mm. Globalization is strictly correlative for me to assertion of particular identities. This is totally wrong. Even some right-wingers got it nicely. I like this. You know that when I was young, right-wingers formula was better red than that. Yeah. No? You know what is now? Some right-wingers told me their formula. Uh, better red than eating hamburgers. Or, the way they explain it to me, communism was our enemy. But it was our enemy, nonetheless, against the background of a shared front. We both have principle, blah, blah, blah. But this liberal capitalist hedonism which undermines our identity, this is the ultimate enemy.
No? I suppose you see this in, say, the Front National in France, rethinking its chauvinism as anti-globalization. Yeah, yeah, precisely the wrong yeah. approach. Although, again, as I always emphasize, there is a tragic point to it, which is that, hopefully now, a new left will change at least a little bit things. But did you notice how in the last decades, this moderate left, new labor or socialist in France, one thinks, one thing they fear mo more than, if I use a plastic British uh, Bram Stoker metaphor, more than vampire fears garlic, which is to be in any way associated with the old-fashioned working class. They love to present themselves as friends of new dynamic uh, digital capitalists, whatever. So then the result you have is that Le Pen, at least in France, apart from some small leftists, still now at least, now it may be different, I'm not so sure. At least, okay, put it like this, 10, 20 years ago, Le Pen's Front National was the only serious, serious in the simple quantitative sense of over 5%, uh, political force which openly appealed to the working class. And Le Pen went pretty far here. Some 15 years ago, I watched on TV one of the Congress of, uh, report on Congress of Front National, where you know what Le Pen did? Le Pen, the racist, he brought on stage a Jew, a black guy, and a Muslim, Arab. And he embraced them all, Le Pen. And then he said, look at them. They are no less French than I am. And then he went on, the true enemy is the now comes secret anti-Semitism and so on. Yep. The true enemy is the cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan. cosmopolitan capitalism and so on, all that on that. This, I find, the ultimate tragedy. Mm. And, you know, this tragedy, we don't have time to go into it, has many aspects. Like, this is why, for example, I have problem with a certain type of political correctness, because its silent class presupposition is, as a rule, uh, uh, despisal, making fun of, uh, like when an enlightened upper middle class American feminist attacks patriarchal attitudes in like 90% of cases, what she has in mind is poor Spanish or other working class where, as we all know, husbands are beating wives and so on and so on. Much less you have this authentic feminism where the problems are, for example, working conditions of Spanish women without regular employment in California, which are horrible and so on and so on. But, you know, this, in other words, I think that, I think that I, I simply find horrifying this shame of, you know, like, it's like the, the it's like the, the new left is playing the, the James Bond uh, films game, which is what for me. I always claim that James Bond must be an agent of Anthony Giddens or someone like You know why? Did you notice, as I put it in my, one of my old books, what happens in a typical James Bond film? It's the only side that I remember in Hollywood Well, you see real manual production process. It's when James Bond penetrates the enemies fortress, and then, as a rule, it's very comical detail, like Goldfinger, the boss, instead of immediately, the arch criminal, instead of immediately shooting him, 
Es como ein Element of Social Realism. Takes him on a tour and explains him the production process, no? And then the function of James Bond is strictly Anthony Giddens function. To make this remainder of physical labor explode, so that then James Bond can call Anthony to Giddens, hi, I did it, working class no longer exists, you can go on with your postmodern theory or whatever, you know. I mean, it's so clear, now it's getting a little bit better. Like the last James Bond is politically relatively progressive, like basically James Bond saves Evo Morales Bolivia from, uh, from what, from some international company, and I like this, be uh, presenting itself as ecological company, but really, we, you know, but another thing worries me there, to conclude, did you notice something for me terrifying? Did you notice that the last James Bond, Quantum of Solace, is the first James Bond without sex at the end? The regular feature of all James Bond still now was, at the end, finally, they are together. And they do it, with all the paradoxes, you know, <coughs> like usually then they discover that they are observed by a yes. satellite or whatever. <laughs> Here is the first James Bond without sex at the end. And it's not only James Bond. Did you notice the same in, now I'm really much lower than James Bond, some of the films I like there. Uh, now I'm really in this, my Goebbels mood again. Like, uh, maybe Goebbels was right. Daring. With the revolver. No, no, it's not revolver. It's Goebbels burning the books, oh, no? Yeah. And what I'm saying is uh, that, uh, like, if you take Dan Brown books and film based on Dan Brown, maybe we should say that the Nazis were wrong to burning books, but not because burning books in itself wrong, just they were burning the wrong books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm quite ready to burn some. Why? Because did you notice how sex is disappearing there? Already, uh, 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 Da Vinci Code, no sex between Robert Langdon and the grand, 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 grand daughter of Jesus Christ. Not only this, I'm even ready to say that the whole function of Jesus Christ involved in sex, you know, the, the secret is that Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene, the secret is what every idiot knows, that they were married, you know, that I claim that the logic is let's have sex up there, God, to cover up the fact that there is no sex here. No couple. And then things get even more mysterious with the last Dan Brown film, Angels and Demons. You know what is the mystery there? There is sex in the book still. Vittoria Vettera, the Italian scientist and Langdon make love like crazy at the end. But not in the movie. Where are we? In the good old times of my youth, we were saying Hollywood added sex to make it more commercial. Now Hollywood is erasing sex. And I don't like this, not because I'm a sex maniac, <laughs> but quite seriously. Because I think, if you just allow me to conclude it, my old joke, because <laughs> the way our societies are structured now, more and more this predominant hedonist, narcissistic ideology, really passionate sex and love are more and more becoming almost something subversive. The idea is, the predominant mode of ideology today is, not even monotheism, it is, it's a social game, you should uh, be just true to yourself, experiment, try this, try that, and so on, so that uh, like, okay, to repeat the story very quickly, that I often repeat, 
my friend Alain Badiou drew my attention to it, and then I found the same example in France, you know, uh, sorry, in United uh, States. You know this verb that we use to fall? You know that uh, mating, dating agencies now? I found already four or five examples. Regularly refer to it. Like I saw a publicity wonderful, which says, we will allow you, uh, dating agency, to find yourself in love without the fall. So not falling. The idea is the following one. Fall is this, you know. I walk along the street, oh my God, I see you. Mm. It's too traumatic. We should be protected from this, you know. No fall. No, you know this vulnerability of falling in love, like all of a sudden, I mean, every reasonable being knows love is the ultimate catastrophe. Imagine yourself not in love. You have a happy life, one, one night stand, uh, one a night date here, there, you drink with friends, then you fall terribly in love. Your entire universe is totally perturbed and so on. So I, I really mean this, that I no longer believe in all that bullshit, you know, that there is something subversive in experimenting, changing part. No, that's the ruling ideology today. More and more, we don't even live in hedonist times. We live in limited, controlled hedonist times. You have coffee, but without caffeine. You have sex, but safe sex. Sex is in if it's healthy. You know what I mean by this? I almost killed myself. The most depressive text that I read in the last month is in Hemispheres when I flew from the United States, where there is a long text there, two, three pages, praising sex. But how? Oh my God, I wanted to kill myself. They say, make intensely love, and they even prescribe positions, because it's very good for your heart, the blood, <laughs> for your muscles, if you change positions. They, they even prescribe you how to kiss. If you do deep kisses, they claim it's very good to develop these muscles. <laughs> when you are old, saliva will not drip out or whatever. That's, that's reality. It's not more and more excessive pleasure, excessive love, whatever. Are, this is the truth of our uh, hedonism, are, are, are perceived as a threat. And this is why I'm returning now to smoking. I don't smoke, and I agree. But I found always something suspicious in this, you know, how this obsession with smoking, as if you display too much of, a, of an obsessive attachment then. And it's interesting how often the same left liberals who oppose smoke, as if, if you smoke you are a murderer, I was at a party in the United States where a friend of mine, I will not name him, but it's not the one whom yeah. I don't name yet. Uh, another friend of mine, a real friend, wanted to smoke, and this guy said, no way. My friend wanted to go to the street. American professor said, no way, not even in the street, because then our neighbors will see that we have a friend who is a smoker, it would ruin us. And then after this, they started to distribute hard drugs, you know, that's okay, no? But not smoke, no? But did you notice then how it goes on and on, like Hollywood? Who smokes today still in Hollywood? Mostly terrorists when they are nervous to blow themselves up or whatever, strictly, and so on. And did you notice also how on cigarette packs it gets worse and worse? First, it was just smoking may endanger your health. Then it was smoking kills, or more brutal, now in some countries, in mine you do, you have these larger and larger photos, you know, 
cancerous bodies, operations, you know. And then you get even these concrete inscriptions, no? And my only reaction is a stupid joke that I, in Greece, I was told this joke, that a Greek guy goes to a store and asks for a certain cigarette. He looks at it and it says, smoking brings cancer. He said, well, give me another cigarette. Then it says, smoking can cause heart attack. No, no, no. Then the third cigarette, it says, smoking brings impotence. And he says, okay, give me the first one. <laughs> it's still better, you know. Stop. I think... <laughs> At least it's dead. With a madman like me, I expected that this will be uh, connected to some machine where if I get too crazy, you push a button there and <laughs> like in James Bond, Goldfinger, you know. <laughs> Um, Thanks very much for your so from you. So we've been from Hegel to Dan Brown and the semiotics of cigarette packets. Slavoj is going to be signing books um, and outside. And it's your choice, either cross or... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you.